Blog Talk Radio. some pretty tough problems, and uh, I think we're tackling a pretty tough problem today. You know, I sound I never get that sound to work correctly, can I? Um, but we are tackling a topic that, uh, equ- well, I- I'm, I'm being told that the word equate is not the right word, so we're comparing. We're comparing and having a discussion about honor crimes and the domestic violence that we see reported daily in the United States. And I'm really privileged to have two people with me who really know what they're talking about, much more than I do, I'm afraid. Um, We have Professor Penny Venetis. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Professor, are you there? Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Great. And um, we also have Jessica Winnegar, uh, professor also, and um, I'm going to give your credentials a little bit more more play here. Um, Jessica, you're here. Thank you. Right? Yes, I'm here. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Um, professor uh, Winnegar says, uh, well, she wrote the article that's spurring this thing. She's the Harold H. and Virginia Anderson Chair in Anthropology at Northwestern University. Um, she specializes in the Middle East and uh, does a lot on issues of, uh, specializes in gender, Islam, and global po- politics. And uh, Professor Venetis is Executive Vice President and Legal Director of Legal Momentum and is also Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the International Human Rights Clinic at Rutgers. So thank you very much, ladies, and please feel free to share more of your background and qualifications as you see fit because uh, they are exemplary and I couldn't possibly uh, do you justice uh, here on the show by by talking about all your credentials. Thank you both for being with us. What started this uh, the idea for this show was um, an article that uh, Professor Winnegar wrote for Women's E-News, and anybody who listens to the show knows my respect for Women's E-News. And um, the topic of the article uh, was not so far away, why U.S. domestic violence is akin to honor crimes. And this fascinated me. And I contacted her. She agreed to do the show. Uh, but we, uh, I think we need to talk about that. And I think, why did you write this article, uh, Jessica? Why, what, what were you saying in this article? I wrote this article after um, researching and teaching about the Middle East for about 25 years and teaching in classrooms with American students who view the Middle East through one prism, and that is oppressed women and women who are oppressed by Islam. And usually one of the main things that students will bring up as evidence of this is honor crimes, which are you know, acts of violence, usually murder, committed by male family members against female family members who are perceived to have brought dishonor upon the family. That's the definition from Human Rights Watch. And You know, these definitely exist in the Middle East and South Asia, and the numbers can be quite stunning, particularly for places like India and Pakistan. But it always surprised me how those conversations quickly sort of moved into, well, the Middle East is just so much worse for women. Um, When we know here domestic violence is at epidemic proportions, women are killed nearly every day and certainly beaten and psychologically abused and raped by uh, intimate partners, sometimes husbands, who are their family members every day. And so I wanted to write this piece almost for use in kind of an introduction class in in college to get uh, Americans thinking about violence against women as a global struggle and globally connected. And so I also just wanted to call attention to what might be a similar logic, not an equation between honor crimes in Uh, the Middle East and South Asia and domestic violence here, but a kind of similar logic. I use the word akin to honor crimes in the title in that um, these are crimes perpetrated by men from the woman's domestic world in response to what is perceived to be a transgression against uh, the male form of power, whether we call it honor in the case of the Middle East or South Asia, or we call it sort of reputation and, and control over women here. 
Um, so that's essentially why I wrote this paper, to sort of be provocative and to, and to make American students really think about what's going on in their own backyard as opposed to just always focusing on sort of over there and presuming it's so much worse. Okay, that makes sense. That makes a great deal of sense. Um, uh, Professor Venetis, you uh, deal with these kinds of issues with immigrant women all the time. And you, uh, when you and I spoke on the phone, you said, well, I'm a little nervous about equating the two and um, for various reasons. But I think you would agree that the word akin is interesting. And you used the word cultural complacency with me, the phrase. And that is exactly what I was thinking when I saw this article and why I wanted to do this show. What, how, do you, how did you read this article? How did you see um, the, this particular viewpoint? Well, I think that um, Professor Winogar makes some really interesting points, um, and I can definitely see the impetus for writing the piece, um, this sense that everything is hunky-dory in the United States when it comes to women and women's rights, whereas sort of over there in the foreign lands, um, things are backwards and more primitive. Um, so I understand the, the need to write a piece like this that is very, very thought-provoking. Um, I think that, um, and there is a culture of complacency um, around the world, including the United States, towards women's lives and violence against women, and it's really critical to call attention to it, particularly among young people who are thinking about these issues and you know, sort of need to make sure that they also, they also um, think locally before acting globally. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think that we just have to be very, very careful about using um, the term um, honor killing uh, to what's happening in, in the United States because my understanding of honor killing is that it's really sort of the family um, at large, not necessarily just one person, but the family at large determining that somebody has to go because they really have dishonored the entire family um, as opposed to sort of bruising the ego of of one person in particular, and um, so I think that distinction, and it's a sort of an ingrained cultural um, acceptance, uh, honor killing, whereas in the United States, again, there is this cultural complacency around violence against women, but at the same time, we really have very, very good laws to make sure that people who um, kill women are brought to justice. So um, the sort of our society, at least nominally, um, actually forbids these types of killings. And um, but there are both state laws and federal laws. And actually, legal momentum uh, was responsible for drafting with then Senator Joe Biden the Violence Against Women Act in 1994, and it's been reauthorized a number of times, including most recently in 2014, to include um, groups of women who would otherwise have been left out, including undocumented women, immigrant women. So as a, as a sort of nation, we do have laws that protect against um, such killings and allow people to get injunctions to prevent, to keep the violent uh, perpetrator away, and also to bring this person to justice and, um, and try them and, and, you know, imprison them if need be. Yeah, and yet... Um, we, we were going to talk about this news article that somebody sent to me. Actually, they, they emailed it to me with a headline saying, well, here we go. Someone was dishonored, and we have another murder here in the United States. The article is, comes from Georgia. Apparently, it's breaking news. I don't have a lot of information about it. Um, but the headline is, uh, well, the, the story is a 50-year-old Georgia man was found dead inside his home after allegedly shooting and killing five people on Friday. It turns out in the rest of the story that these five people are his, his family members, including his wife, and uh, that in the article it says that they believe the suspect set the home on fire before killing himself. And according to officials, he apparently snapped, well, we can have that's a whole different discussion, after his wife informed him that she wanted a divorce. Now, this happens all the time, all the time. I mean, that's why it's most dangerous for women, you know, the most dangerous time for women to leave a, an abusive relationship is when, or the most dangerous time for them is when they're trying to leave. Um, the, the, they get a notice that they're going to divorce him, and he goes uh, and, and does something like this. So the person who sent me this article was equating this to, okay, he's, he's being, in his mind, dishonored. 
And so, therefore, he is doing this. And so, in her mind, the person who sent me this article, it's very clear that this had something to do with perceived honor. Jessica, um, you had... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'd like to respond to that. So, I think... Um, what Professor Venetis is saying is, is really an important distinction that we need to keep in mind, um, which mm-hmm. is that, you know, in this case in Georgia, it's not like his whole family is going to defend what he did, right? Whereas right. in That's cases exactly of right, yeah. honor crimes... Well, presumably, in, although I right, have presumably. to tell you, how many articles have we read where they go to a family member who say he was just such a wonderful person and basically blame her? That if it hadn't been for her, you know, the, this wouldn't he would never have done this. I mean, I've seen over and over articles like that. So kind of subtly, maybe they are the whole family coming together. I don't know. But I I just might, I I have never seen, I I really have never seen an article about that. I mean, there might be some neighbor who says, yeah, he was a nice guy. I can't believe he did it. But I don't think I've ever seen a situation where the the general ethos of the reporting, whether it's on um, TV or in in print media, um, has been that the person deserved it or that this was, somehow justified so um, again I think um, when we were speaking a little bit earlier you said if you see one more article that says oh my neighbor is such a nice guy (laughs) after just finishing killing his family that's sort of a a different thing than people saying that this you know sort of a murder on this level or any sort of murder of another human being was was, you know somehow justified or that the person deserved it Um, right Good point. Good point. Um, so one but thing I, is there, I mean, is it a huge stretch to uh, because I, I mean, I can send you articles where, you know, the family, a family member is just like the neighbor quoting another and and implying that it was just the undue stress he was experiencing because of her actions that led to this, you know, untoward behavior. Um, so it does occur, um, and and it's pretty subtle. And and again. Nothing like the entire family collaborating to get, you know, to to murder uh, a woman. I mean, not anything like that. But at some level, is there a similarity? I, I can really only speak about. Um, I mean, I, I'm my expertise is more in the kind of quote over there. <laughs> um, okay. So, but but I guess it's it's raising an interesting question. What I'm trying to um, do with this article is to get us to to sort of. Ask, ask these kinds of questions, like what might be going on um, when there is, you know, a neighbor or, or family members, maybe in the case of a beating, not a murder, saying, well, she kind of, you know, has always been a pain, or, um, or he snapped and it's not really that he meant to do it somehow, you know, blaming kind of like psychosis or something. Um, sort of thinking more about, we've, we've done a very good job as Professor Vanetta's points out in creating laws and you know legal structures and also police practices that uh, certainly are meant to, at least in theory, protect women. And I would say that that's much more so than the majority of countries. And again, we don't want to generalize the Middle East and South Asia. So, and I point that out in the piece. Um, but I think we've done less research, perhaps, or uh, in, in terms of a comparative sense of what what motivates these men to do it, and that could be also part of a strategy to sort of battle this epidemic in the United States. And I also just want to return to the point about um, the important distinction being here, it's sort of an individual, maybe honor, we might think about that term, but an an affront to an individual, whereas um, in these cases of honor crimes in Pakistan, for instance, it's it's seen as an affront to the family. That's a really important distinction to make. Um, however, it's also really important to understand that it's not like every family of the you know millions of families in this region would accept uh, these kinds of acts as a result of women's actions. And a lot depends on geography, on social class, on education level. Um, so it's really important not to sort of generalize about the region in that way. Yeah, and the other thing um, I want to bring up is that often the family in these societies, um, the family of the woman is actually can be used for to protect the woman in these kinds of cases in a way that sometimes extended families cannot be brought um, in to, to protect the woman in the United States, which is a more kind of nuclear family situation. Right, and the thing is though that sort of standing in place of the of the family of the extended family is are all sorts of uh, domestic uh 
violence shelters and right. which are you know mm-hmm. of course underfunded but crisis mm-hmm. centers things like that um and again mm-hmm. you know the system is in the united states is very very far from perfect um so i don't mean to imply that it is but there are emergency um emergency routes that are um mm-hmm. that are available for people who are who are really in crisis now again the system is not perfect because uh, one of the, um, you know, sort of one of the well-known issues surrounding domestic violence is in the United States is that law enforcement doesn't always take the um, the calls of someone in crisis very, very seriously. And one case in particular is the case of someone named um, Jessica Gonzalez, and this was a woman in Colorado who um, had three daughters and had uh, an order of protection saying that her husband could not um, come to the children and come to her because he had been abusive. And uh, this was her ex-husband. And um, she came home from school, from work one day and discovered that her children were missing. And she suspected that her ex-husband had taken them. And she then spent the next 12 hours trying to get the police in her, in her, um, in her hometown in Colorado to actually find the children because she was worried that they were going to get um that they were going to be harmed um and the police did not take her seriously I mean she made multiple calls and she went to the police station and the night ended very very tragically when the three um the husband showed up to the police precinct um at 3 in the morning and um and the kids were you know the kids were dead um, and then the, the um, you know, the husband also, um, you know, shot himself. And there she was. She knew that there was something wrong, and she wasn't taken seriously, and she sued. She sued um, the city of uh, Castle Rock, and she went to the Supreme Court, and actually she lost in the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and the, she said that the police should have enforced the um, the um, validly issue order of protection, and they didn't, and she was suing, saying that this was a violation of her rights under the Constitution, and the Supreme Court disagreed um, with a horrible ruling that said, um, basically, that even though it was a validly issued order, that um, at the end of the day, it was just a recommendation to the police to enforce it, not even though the order said they must enforce it. Well, then uh, Ms. Gonzalez didn't stop there, and she took her case before the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights, and the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights actually found that the U.S. in this case had been in violation of international laws that protect women, and um, they said that the enforcement of orders of protection in the United States actually um, violated uh, women's rights in international law. So, again, um, you know, there are huge, huge cracks in our in our system, um, despite some very very good laws again that legal momentum help enact. We have a couple of callers, and so I want to take a caller if we could do that right at this point. Also, I want to give out our phone number. It is six four six three seven eight zero four three zero six four six three seven eight zero four three zero love to have you uh, jump into this conversation. Also, the chat room is open. If you'd like to type in a comment or a question, I can uh, convey that to our guests for you. Caller, are you there? Caller? Uh, this is, hi, this is Rita. Oh, From Women's hi, News. Rita and hi. From Women's E! News. <laughs> yes, hi. Uh, how is hi, everybody today? Um, I, well, I think you're both right. We have a better legal scheme, but maybe not a huge improvement on the culture. But uh, the issue I wanted to raise, it, and I would like both to comment on it, is the reflection of how seriously the murder of women is taken when so many women still are in prison because they shot their ex, uh, who they feared was about to murder them. And way back, there was a battered women's defense, and some women are taken seriously, but overall, uh, women have been penalized for protecting themselves. That's a very good point. How does that play into our topic today? Well, you know, I think that um, 
there are women who are um, still incarcerated for um, trying to protect themselves, and there is the battered women's defense that has developed and is a legally cognizable defense saying it's really self-defense. Um, and uh, those women need lawyers, frankly, um, because those cases are hard. Um, and also uh, defense lawyers need to make that defense early on in the process um, as opposed to once the person has been convicted and then it's harder to reopen, if not near impossible, to reopen the um, to reopen the case because you have to raise all your defenses as you're going through um, the process. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, there are there are plenty of women who are sitting in prison uh, for precisely those reasons, not only in the United States but around the world. I mean, there was recently a case in, I believe, in France um, where somebody was living under just incredibly oppressive, abusive. Um, um, circumstances, both she and her children, for decades and decades, and uh, the woman had reported um, the abuse to the police and in France, and the police wouldn't listen, and the neighbors knew there was something odd going on, but they didn't um, report. And part of this whole thing is to educate the public that domestic violence is not a secret. It Everybody should be concerned about it. It is not a love spat. Um, it is actually a serious crime where people's lives are in danger. Um, one of the Does things anybody, that, do either of you have any data or know where it is? This is Rita. One more quick question: the data about an, an estimate of the number of women in prison in the U.S. Uh, for murder or you know extra, extra, assault and battery or whatever um, for trying to defend themselves. I don't have those um, statistics. Um, um, I don't know if they. I don't know if they exist. But um, again, we really desperately need lawyers to become involved in those cases again fairly early on to help those women. Well, and if I can just interject here, it doesn't have to be an actual harm done. Uh, I'm thinking of the Florida woman. We did a show on her about a year ago, where oh, yes. she had a licensed gun. She was. She had a legally owned gun. Her abusive husband, who admitted he had abused her, uh, was in her home. He was threatening her. She fired a warning shot. No one was hit. No one was injured, and she was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Now that was that. That was from the county in Florida. And um, Rita, you might be familiar with this, and, and refresh my memory. I can't remember her name, but there was such a an, up, uh, 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 an uproar over this that they actually um, went back, and I don't know whether they overturned that conviction, but then they thought it would be dropped. But then the prosecutor went ahead, and, and I haven't heard what's happening with that, but she wanted to re-prosecute um, for an even longer uh, potential sentence. So in that case, nobody was hurt. Nobody was even shot, and that woman got a prison sentence for firing her warning shot. Um, I, 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 it's just, it boggles oh, my mind. Quite, yeah, uh, I believe her first name is Michelle, but I'm going to look it up on Women's E! News because that's one of the stories we covered extensively. Um, yeah. No one, no one was hurt. No one. I'm surprised. No one. And she had an has, order of protection too. It's. I'm surprised because yep. Florida has the stand your ground statute that became so notorious very recently. Um, and well, apparently um, you can stand your ground if you have a penis. Okay. Sorry. There's really no. For for the Middle East and South Asia, there's really no good statistics on on this. Um, but what what has emerged recently is the um, in some places like in Turkey, women who have killed their husbands in self defense um, are using honor actually as defense. So they're using the honor crime logic to defend to defend themselves that. You know, they were dishonored by an abusive husband, and therefore they had the right to kill. And there was uh, just a year ago a Turkish um, a Turkish woman who did this named Jilem Doyan, and she became a celebrity in Turkey um, among feminists um, for sort of turning the tables. Um, but it's, I do think it's interesting that the sort of honor is used as, as a defense in that case, and I'm not sure that that's actually what we want here. We kind of want to break out of the language yes. of honor. <laughs> um, but there aren't there aren't really accurate statistics on this. So was she successful in Turkey in um, in avoiding prosecution? Did it work um, both ways? The case is still ongoing. So, 
And then we'll I guess the question is, are the are men in Turkey prosecuted for killing their um you know, their partners, um and, you know, sort of justifying it as an honor killing? That that has definitely happened in Turkey. I mean they're they're prosecuted. Mm-hmm. Um for the mo- it depends on region. Um, right, some more in urban areas, they get prosecuted. Um, and honor can be used to def- as a defense. It's not always successful, and that's, right. that's the case in a lot of places. Um, so, um, you know, in most cases in the Middle East where a man kills a woman or kills his wife, he is prosecuted. And whether or not honor gets used, as I mean, is considered a legitimate defense actually really depends on depends on the case, depends on the jury, depends on the judge, depends on the lawyers. Um, it also depends on the legal structure in the country. So, you know, Jordan, for example, has the forgiveness clause as a legal loophole, but not all countries have that, um, you know, that the family can, can, can forgive the husband who killed out of honor. Um, I was doing just a little bit of, of research here, and uh, I believe the woman's name uh, in Florida is Marissa Alexander. I remember um, the last name. <laughs> yeah, Marissa Alexander. Yes. And um, I'm, I'm trying to find the date on this article, and I'm not finding it. Uh, uh, this is, okay. yeah, it's from 2014. The same article indicates that in New York State, 67% of women in prison for killing someone were abused by that person, and in California it's 93%. Now, I don't know the accuracy, and it doesn't cite the source for that. Um, so, but that, you know, in a, in a cursory search, that's what I was able to find. Right, and it's, look, it's, really, you know, domestic violence, it really is an epidemic in the United States and, and around the world. And the thing is, it's really critical to, to shine some light on it. And, um, you know, at Legal Momentum, we really for quite a long time have been trying to make sure that there are laws around the nation that allow domestic violence uh, victims, and not just domestic violence, but stalking victims, um, victims of of dating abuse, to be able to, um, for example, um, get protections in the workplace uh, because often if you're in an abusive situation, you have to get out. And one of right. the main reasons that um, women stay in abusive situations because for financial reasons because they're economically yeah. dependent and actually that's financial um, sort of holding the purse strings is one way that an abuser gains control over, over women and children. So we have um, successfully made it um, the case that uh, in a number of states – that women actually uh, are entitled to reasonable accommodations from their workforce uh, to be able to go to court, look for housing, find a safe place to live. And that's really critical to um, to enabling women to leave abusive situations and to protect themselves and their children, that it's not a domestic issue. Um, and perhaps the, names have, the name has to change, but it really is a, a, a violence issue that spills over to every aspect of of women's lives. But let's this get is back interesting. To this I don't want motion. to oh. go ahead. Heather, if I can jump in with with an update about Marissa. Yes. In January uh twenty seven she was freed from prison but given two years of supervised release. And uh she has a, a her own website and a message to people thanking them. And she has one more year to go. January 27, 2017, she will be free of state supervision. So it's not really a slam dunk, but it's better than prison. Yeah, that's true. Well, she did serve a great deal. She she served many months in prison just, you know, before it was overturned. I mean, just ridiculous. Um, wasn't so, even overturned. <laughs> it was like she's still being punished. But anyway, yes, uh, it, it, crazy. And so, what, you know, to kind of come back to our topic here, um, you know, how much of this has to do? I, I, I just keep thinking, you know, from your article, Jessica, and I'd never thought of it this way before. So maybe I'm just a little slow. But is it perceived? In this, you know, I mean, obviously to a different degree, but is it perceived by controlling uh, men as being dishonored when the wife leaves or does something? And then is our culture supporting that by, 
am I really am I just reaching here? Can, can you help me, Professor Venetis? Um, I think that it's again, it's sort of the individual versus the culture as a whole. I think that yes, the people clearly the people who are doing the killing, they must feel slighted <laughs> um, in some way, and their honor, um, you know, feel like their honor has been violated. But again, I don't know that the killing then makes it an honor killing. I think that. Um, there's psychological instability. I think there's, um, you know, the need to control all of those sort of all of those things. And I do think that um, that um, Professor uh, Winnegar really sort of wrote a thought-provoking piece of, and I think it goes back to the, this whole notion of what we were talking about, this culture of complacency, that um, that it happens here too. I think that's ultimately the point that that she was trying to make, and that's a good point. It really does happen here, and it happens a lot. And the question to ask for us to ask as a society is, how can we make it stop? Um, there's critical things that need to happen. Law enforcement needs to be trained better. Um, we have to have more funding for emergency crisis centers. We also have to make sure that, um, that uh, every state, adopts laws uh, to protect victims of violence and that they be taken seriously. Um, so sort of all of these things, um, and we also have to teach men that this is not okay um, and that this is this is violence and this is a crime. So as a society, we need to take a look in the mirror very closely and not just point our fingers and talk about people over there who are, you know, sort of, you know, are doing things in a way that is uncivilized. And we have to realize that, we too are really not addressing this problem head on, and we have to continue to do so. And again, uh, the Violence Against Women Act was enacted 40 years ago. It is a good law. Um, it is a um, important law. And um, and uh, I'm sorry, not 40 years ago. I wish it were 40 years ago. 1994. So it's you know 30 years ago. Um, and um, 20 years ago. Sorry, my math is really bad. Um, but it's a good law, and it really sort of brought this, you know, sort of these, um, the violence, uh, you know, sort of out of the shadows and made it public. And it's a pronouncement to say this just, it, this just can't go on, and it has to stop. And the federal government has provided billions and billions of dollars over the years to states to make sure that states take action so that um, abusive situations. Um, sort of don't get out of hand and, and that women have a way to, to leave. And again, uh, these laws, protections have been extended to um, immigrant women, undocumented women. Um, so again, it's really critical to make sure that all women are protected. The most vulnerable women, frankly, of all are tribal women. Um, Native American women have the highest rate of incidence of, of domestic violence. So, um, and, um, you know, that's something we have to address also. We have to make sure that everybody is protected. Rita, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Because we have another caller. No, no, I waylaid the conversation enough. Thank you again, Heather, for this great show. And uh, and your two guests. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Rita. Before we take the next caller. Pardon? Could I jump in before we take the next caller? Sure, please do. Thank you, Rita. so one of the one of the other reasons I wrote the piece is I'm not a domestic violence expert when it comes to the United States, um, but of course as a U.S. citizen living here and a feminist, it's something that deeply concerns me. And one of the ideas I had was to maybe think about um, how honor crimes are understood and, and treated and um, analyzed might methodologically provide us some openings for um, battling this situation of domestic violence in the United States. So one of the things that uh, Professor Vanetta's talked about is this sort of individual cultural distinction that here it might be really individual and there it's really cultural. I actually think that one of the we can sort of use the comparative analysis to kind of break that down a little bit because Certainly in cases that I've seen in Egypt, which is where I particularly work, I mean, often the the man is, um, you know, it isn't it's sort of an individual thing. The man is particularly uh, emasculated or has particular psychological issues or particular, um, you know, grew up in a particularly abusive home. Um, so it's not necessarily culturally within his, in, within his realm something that it will be accepted. It's not um, always you know, culturally accepted to murder a woman um, in the Middle East. 
Um, and likewise, I think it might be useful to think about how culture in the United States or cultural trends might also be uh, creating this. So we talked about the culture of complacency. I like that term for how that might be um, excusing it here or actually ask, you know, uh, taking people's attention away from it would be a more accurate way to put it. But I also think we can t- talk about sort of the culture of masculinity in the United States and how it has become so linked to um, violence and um, degradation of women in ways that are, you know, one could argue are actually quite unique and specific to American culture. And so recognizing kind of the 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 culture of kind of masculinity and violence and degradation of women in the United States and how that might be playing a role in this epidemic might be really useful in the same way that we might think about individual issues as useful or individual explanations as useful in the Middle East as useful as the cultural. I think you make a good point. Yeah, you make a you make a very very good point. And the question is: Is violence glorified in our culture? Is violence against women glorified in our culture? I mean, those are all um, important questions. And the answer to both is actually yes. Um, and um, the other uh, we've just saved to, thousands of dollars worth of research. The answer is yes. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, and the other thing is, you know, how to be proactive about it, right? Isn't it right. critical to teach children at a very very young age? to have healthy relationships and not just, you know, kids are taught not to shove, not to push, to use their words, but there's never a gender component involved in that. Right. Um, and there should be, right? It really is, mm-hmm. is critical. And we do, Legal Momentum does a lot of work in the campus sexual assault arena. And, um, you know, I don't want to stray too far from domestic violence, but many of those relationships are dating relationships mm-hmm. and um, where a woman is, is raped, um, or um, situations where a woman's not interested in someone and he rapes her, or when she's drugged. And, you know, I've written on this topic saying, um, and, the, and the numbers are high. I mean, the highest, uh, you know, sort of the most vulnerable time for freshmen is, um, you know, from October until January of their, of their you know, beginning their college mm-hmm. career. Mm-hmm. And um, not, you know, it can't be that, all boys go to school to college and become rapists. It's just this, you know, sort of conditioning right. of, of you know, sort of not really knowing how to behave and not realizing that um, you have to have a respectful, consensual relationship with someone. Right. Uh, ladies, I want to – we have two callers that have been hanging on for 25 minutes, so I want to get to them. Uh, hopefully they're still there. Um, caller, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Okay, thank you. What's your name Probably. and where are you from? My name is Michael. I'm from Michael, LA. thank you. Did you, want, uh, did you want to join our yeah. discussion here, Michael? Yes, I would just like to say all men are not women abusers. And it seems like of course. from the outside in that you're, uh, you guys are generalizing men as a whole. Like, it's just a problem with all men. Like, we got where these predators or something. And... Mm-hmm. A lot of times, we all talk about double standards, and a lot of times it's double standards both ways. Kind of like I think you make a good point, Michael, and I certainly don't think any of us wants to characterize all men um, as abusers um, or as murderers or anything like that. I'm the mother of a son, um, and yeah. I absolutely do not want to give that impression. And, and, and but as most things it's the anomalies that I, I always used to tell my kids they call it news because it's new and different because it's unusual um, and so we are talking about a percentage of the population and we don't want to give the impression that all men are abusers or anything ladies do you have anything to add to that no it's absolutely right I don't believe that we were generalizing to say that all men are abusers abusers that's just not the case um, I think we're talking about specific instances where there has been violence and women are killed um, so you're absolutely you're absolutely right, and there are some situations where it's you know sort of same gender violence um, in yes, partner relationships. Yes. There are situations where there are women who are abusive towards them, but it's those are uh, significantly more rare. Um, yeah. And there are cases where kids are abusing their parents. Um, you know parents why are abusing rare? Kids. I actually been in a domestic violence relationship. You know why they're rare? Because men don't report it. It's a female slap. Ninety-nine percent of men are—I called the police before, and they actually like laugh me off and everything. But ninety-nine percent 
as a male speaking, I would tell you, 99% of male, you you could... My, okay, I, Michael, I, it sounds like, like I would like to just speak to that you. also. Um, um, one thing yeah, that Michael uh, raised is really I think important. I, I'm not hearing you anymore, so I'm going to click off, but, um, I, you know, it's not because I don't want Hello? to hear comments. Can you hear me now? I, oh, can there you, you go. Me? Okay. Yeah, I can't yeah. hear you now, Michael, but you know what? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I am going to let you go, Michael. I think you make some really good points, and I'm going to let Penny respond to one of them. But the fact is that this is a whole different show, and, and you've given me good thoughts for a future show. But we want to get back to this whole idea of, um, of uh, the uh, cultural um, relationship between honor crimes in the Middle East and um, what we have here. Well, so thank you for your points. We're going to address it. Next time, get your facts straight. Man, do get thank a you, Michael. Okay, and Penny, did you want to respond to that? Oh, I think it was Jessica who wanted to respond to it. <laughs> yeah, I just want to say oh, two okay, things that Michael, that Michael raised that I actually think are really important. Um, we Obviously, we were not trying to generalize but what uh, that all men are wife beaters, but that absolutely happens when it comes to um, men, quote, over there, that, you know, there are American stereotypes about Arab men, about Muslim men, about South Asian men, that they're all somehow abusive wife beaters, and that's a real stereotype that's out there that I think that the discourse about honor crimes really reproduces. And so it's also important to recognize that, um, you know, honor crimes are not that common, actually, in the Middle East. They're more common in South Asia. Uh, Percentage-wise with the population, obviously there's always going to be issues with reporting, but percentage-wise with the population, they're akin to or less than the percentages in the United States. And so I take the point that it's really important not to generalize, although I think it's much easier for Americans, unfortunately, to generalize about um, Middle Eastern, Muslim, or Arab men. And then the second point I just want to raise from what Michael is saying, I mean, obviously you could do a whole show on women beating their husbands and boyfriends, but what his comments speak to me is the sense of emasculation in American society in a time when a real economic crisis, when men can't, you know, make the kind of living that they used to make. And that does not excuse at all uh, any kind of violence against women, but that uh, the fact that a man feels like he can't call to report domestic violence or that, you know, he is um, not able to provide for his family, so if his wife dishonors him, he has a right to kill him. I mean, these are all issues that really need to be unpacked and analyzed. And I hear him as, as as calling as a kind of emasculated kind of expression of that kind of American emasculation. And I think that's a good point. And, and it's important for us to keep reiterating that. You know, we're, we're talking yeah. about a certain segment of a population. We're not talking about men in general. And, uh, and, and I, I think that, uh, you know, if I can take just 30 seconds here, I, I grew up in a family of all girls. Even the dog was a, a female. And the, my father was in the home. But my father was the only male child out of eight. My father was the first feminist I ever knew. He had a very feminist perspective on life. And, you know, so I grew up saturated, you know, with, with females. And, you know, I mean, I, it, and my first child was a male. And I remember thinking, a boy, what am I supposed to do with a boy? <laughs> I don't know what you do with boys. It has been so enlightening for me. He's now an adult and off on his own. But I learned so much about what it means to be a male in our society, and I am so grateful, and it has led me to really understand a lot more uh, about what it means to be a male in our culture. And I, I, I am the last person to be, you know, talking about all males being bad or all males being this or that or the other thing. And they also have their struggles. They have a whole set of struggles that are different. It's just that on this show we're talking about this particular struggle. So I want to make that clear for Michael. Um, we have one other caller that I want to take. This poor person has been sitting here for 25 minutes, so hopefully they're still with us. Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Great. Heather. Thank you so much for holding so long. Do you have a question or comment that we can address? Yeah, Heather, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hello? Oh, it's Marilee McClain. Oh, hi. Wow, this is hi, a whole week today. <laughs> <laughs> hi, Marilee. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I've been listening to your time. I, yeah, my, my thing, I just wanted to make a comment, is that, I mean, I am I I am a domestic uh, abuse survivor, and um, and I'm very interested, obviously been in the subject matter for over 25 years. And, and I was looking at... Um, the credentials of, um, I'm trying to think of her name, I, 
the clinical professor? Uh, Penny Professor Benettis. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, Legal Momentum, Director of Legal Momentum and stuff, and the human rights clinic that she's done and all that. Well, I think it's really important, and, and to make a point back to what the last um, caller just said, is that we keep saying that, you know, we're not going after these men, and, and obviously women love men. It's not about that. But the statistics will show that the men are the abusers and the men are in the higher percentage of the deaths and the killings and stuff. So we have yeah. to ask, how are we raising our boys? And, and furthermore, I wanted to get to this, um, the professor, uh, about the human rights clinic because I just wanted to make her aware if there was a possibility of having her be more aware. And I know you can explain this more. But we have so many women in the United States and internationally that cannot protect their children in the court system when there's domestic abuse. And this is a human rights violation, and I don't know why mm-hmm. nobody's picking that up and running with it with a human rights violation and a civil rights violation. Well, well actually, I just want to say uh, Legal Momentum has for 30 years had an, has a national judicial education program, and we have, we have spent, we have several full-time people working on this issue to try and educate the judiciary on issues related to uh, gender discrimination and violence against women, that that has been mm-hmm. one of our signature projects. The problem is that the project is very big, and I agree fully that the family courts um, often make decisions. I don't know about often. Uh, that Some family court judges make decisions. Uh, that are actually putting um, children uh, at risk and in danger, and we are trying our best to combat it with um, the resources that we that we get to do this um, work. We get it, actually we get grants from the federal government. We've got millions of dollars from the federal government over the years to actually address this very very issue, and we have many resources on our website, webinars that are free to the public that can be downloaded. They can be downloaded by courts. We have a new, um, you know, sort of a a new grant that we're administering where we are training lay advocates from around the country so that they can actually accompany women um, and be um, non-legal advocates for them uh, in situations where they have been victims of, of violence. Um, but, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. We need more trained professionals to deal with these issues. Um, so we are trying, and we hope that others also are trying. There are other advocacy groups who are also, um, you know, provide support and services for victims of domestic violence, and there should be more. Yeah, Professor Benetis, um, in, in light of that, we, we started talking, I think, with, with Rita a little bit about the Jessica Gonzalez situation where she went to an international uh, right. resource. For right. What what kind of um, – what what – are the international resources um, and what impact? Okay, Jessica Gonzalez won in the in the international um, uh, court, but what? So what? So what? What well, happened then? Well, <laughs> you raise an issue that we could spend you know years talking about, which is uh, what's the impact of that uh, decision on the United States? The impact of the Inter-American Commission is not binding. Um, but frankly, the United States has, um, you know, it's an embarrassment. It's a big shame um, for a, an international tribunal to say that the way that domestic violence situations are being handled in the United States violates international law. But there really is no penalty. The U.S. doesn't have to pay any damages or any fees or anything like that. But it does have. So it's this a moral victory on it. it. Right. Well, it's a it's a moral victory, and I think that. Um, it's um i mean it's not an empty it's not a pyrrhic victory but it is certainly there there are no um the us does not have to pay any damages um but again it's a finding by a, a um an, an international tribunal that that this um you know this is a problem and it can't continue and i just i want to just make sure that um you know there are resources being um allocated for this both on the federal and the state level they certainly are not enough and again it, there really has to be you know as as um professor winnegar was saying and and some callers are saying there has to be a cultural shift there has to be this culture of complacency has to um you know sort of has to change that violence against women is not okay and it has to change in the united states and it has to change around the world as well 
Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. Marilee, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much. A, a great contribution Thank there. You. Okay. okay. Thank you. Um, bye bye. Bye bye. Um, and uh, one of the things I think to bring us back to our, our topic here is uh, you know this this sense that we keep coming back to this cultural complacency. This this idea that well yeah it happens here but it's not as bad as all of those people. Um, and is that Jessica? What what would you like us to take away from the article that you wrote? Um, well, I just I do want to add one thing, and and that is that you know there are uh, there are rising numbers of um, organizations and feminist groups that are fighting domestic violence um, and domestic abuse of children um, throughout the region of the Middle East and South Asia, and some of them are connected with international human rights groups. So that's just a response to the last caller that these organizations, um, you know, are starting to be put in place over the past 20, 30 years, and they're arguing for legal reforms and other kinds of um, infrastructure besides the, the, the woman's family as the kind of um, crisis shelter that she would turn to in in these societies, which is always good, but often not enough. Um, what I guess what what is coming out of this conversation is um, is more need for a reflection on the kind of cultural influences in the United States that might be perpetuating this ep- epidemic as a kind of um, another kind of avenue to take in addition to. Uh, the legal arena as well as, you know, the law enforcement arena. So I think that would be what I would want people to take out of my article, aside from not stereotyping <laughs> about um, about gender, et cetera, in the Middle East and South Asia, but paying more attention to kind of the cultural forces at work here in the United States. And I also want to just add that those can also vary according to geography within the United States as well. And, um, you know, people talk about cultures of honor in the South, for example. I, you know, that would be something to explore, um, not to say that all Southern men are anything, but... Um, but just thinking more about the cultural factors shaping this. And but domestic violence, um, I think that's a good point. Domestic violence really transcends um, ethnic uh, uh, differences, racial differences, socioeconomic right. differences. I mean, we have worked with sort of the poorest of the poor women and also the richest of the rich um, right. women, yeah. um, and who are who they themselves are victims of domestic, and their children are victims of domestic violence as well. So paying attention to what might be the differences between different communities, but also what might be the similarities, and that might, um, in terms of, for example, you know, definitions of what proper female behavior is or proper, you know, male image, and that might help also um, kind of fight the ep- epidemic. As women achieve more and more equality, uh, especially economic equality, um, do either of you see this situation changing in the next 40 years or 25 years? Or do you see it improving? Do you see it staying stagnant? What What do you see, um, Jessica? You wanna? Uh, you can You can take a penny. <laughs> Well, I'm an eternal optimist. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing what I do. I'm not a blind optimist, but an eternal optimist. I mean, I think things continue to get better. We may have a women president who I think, you know, has focused, you know, many of her um, attentions over the years on issues related to women and children, and I think that that would be, you know, significant in terms of making sure that – Laws, good laws go into effect, and also that funding is allocated to deal with um, domestic violence, both sort of for individuals and on a, a cultural um, on a cultural cultural basis. Um, I do think it's critical that um, you know sort of as women become more empowered and they become more active in the political process, that um, you know they will author laws that um, that impact women and children in a positive way. So I do feel. You know, I do feel um, that things will get better, um, but we need training, um, we need education. That has to be a vital component, and these uh, f- this funding should should never be should never be cut. Okay. In terms of um, 
In terms of our original conversation, the cultural complacency, we've talked about actually, you know, what we can do and what the prognosis might be for actual, um, you know, the, the violence against women. But what about dealing with the idea of the cultural complacency uh, that we have? And I suspect, you know, I mean, uh, I suspect that we're not the only ones in, the, in this world that have a certain level of cultural complacency about things like violence against women. Um, what can we do about that? Is there any group that's, that's trying to uh, point that out? Is it, what, what are we doing about that, that whole notion that, well, this is not a problem we have to worry about. Those folks are the ones that are causing all the problems. Well, the momentum has been around for 40 years, so we try on a daily basis, basis to make sure that uh, there is no culture of complacency. We we drafted the Violence Against Women Act. We do work on campus sexual assault. We do a lot of work on uh, rape um, and the processing of rape kits. So, um, but we're and we're not the only women's rights organization that is involved in, in these issues. But, you know, sort of everybody bears that responsibility. You, um, Heather, talked about raising raising sons, and, you know, it happens at home, and it happens um, in school, and it happens everywhere. We really do need this cultural shift of respect regardless of a person's um, gender, their race, their sexual orientation, um, all of those all of those issues. It really is um, respecting other people and, and providing them with the dignity that they deserve. And I think another key element here is Hollywood yeah, and I think that there are there are groups obviously who've who've worked to, you know, um improve the image of women in in, in Hollywood in, in films, for example. And I think that's another thing to take into account is, is the popular culture. So video games and and films that sort of glorify violence against women. Um I don't know, people talk about how many women get killed in Game of Thrones, a show I do not watch, but these are these are kind of other things that we can work on in our sort of visual and popular culture, and that relates to how we raise our kids, too. Well, I know, I mean, I don't suppose this has changed any, but when um, I had um, um, was working more with children and I saw video games, I mean, here's the men and the characters that are all decked out in you know, long sleeves and long pants and jackets and flak jackets and blah, 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 and there's the girl in a bikini with her boobs all pointy out. You know, I mean, really? Mm-hmm. You're going <laughs> to, we can't. You know, I mean, presumably, you know, if it's really hot, then how come the men aren't wearing Speedos in these games? You know what I mean? I, I, you know, just that whole difference in how we portray women at all levels. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's a whole different show. The other thing that I was um, thinking of in respect to Michael, I think that, you know, we have to do this education. We have to have these discussions. But how do we have them and how do we frame them so that, we're not giving the impression that all men are abusers, which is what Michael seemed to think. Um, how do we how do we frame things in a way that we can address them without getting people's toes turned under so they don't listen? I, I you know, and, and that's maybe a moot question. I mean, if you have any comments, I'd love to hear them. I don't think anybody has ever said that all men are abusers. I mean, if he chose to heard that to hear that, then that's. Um, you know, sort of unfortunate. And I don't think any of the educational programs, I don't think that's the premise of it. I really think we just have to focus on healthy relationships and mutual respect and um, and objectific- objectification of people um, to make sure that, um, that everybody treats everyone else um, with respect and knows that it's not okay to be violent towards another another person and it's not okay to be violent towards women or to your children so i think that's what it is i think it's critical to place violence against women on par with any other sort of violence um and for until the violence against women act was passed that was not the case somebody could be arrested for assault but you could not um assaulting someone but you could not be arrested for assaulting your spouse or your girlfriend um, so the Violence Against Women Act meant to put it on equal par with other vi- violence against women on equal par with other violent crimes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, ladies, I'm I'm gobsmacked by our conversation. It went in ways that I wasn't anticipating. I I learned a lot, and I really do thank you um, for um, for for sharing your your thoughts and your research. And uh, I appreciate both of you, and I appreciate the work you're doing. Um, 
so thank you for that. Thank um, you for having us. Thanks for having us, yeah. and thanks for addressing this very, very important issue, Heather. Well, we we try. We try. Um, the um, show next week is going to be on strangulation, uh, a very unmentioned and untalked about topic, but very significant. Um, and um, and I usually end the show with a quote. I have to tell you, I, I just don't have a quote for this. Um, so please join us next week. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, all of our callers. We do appreciate it. And uh, join us next week for strangulation. Thank, Thank you. you, Heather. Bye-bye. Nice. Bye-bye.